can actually do it while you're sitting there if you have an iPad or if you have a phone. Uh, so uh, welcome to do that. Um, I'd like to talk more, but really there's so much text to get through today, and I really want to give God's Word uh, some time to sink into our hearts. And so if you'll pray with me that He would open up His Word, and then we'll get into it. Jesus, uh, we, we pray uh, that Your Holy Spirit would be here this morning, um, because I need a lot of help. Uh, I, I normally need a lot of help, Jesus, but today I'm just very aware uh, that I'm going to be speaking from some texts that uh, really, unless you connect the dots, Jesus, are going to be impossible to be connected. So, Holy Spirit, would you come in power and would you give me the right words to speak to your people today, to help your people, uh, that we may learn more about you and know more about you here this morning. Uh, Jesus, I thank you for your grace and what you have done for us, and I pray that we again hear what you have done for us as good and great news, Jesus. We ask all these things not because we deserve to or not because we have to, Jesus, but because we want to, and we're just asking in faith, would you do this for your glory? Would you show us yourself this morning, Jesus? In your name I pray. Amen. We're in the book of Nehemiah, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, just kind of put up your hand. You can put it up high or, or not so high, and some one of the ushers will come and bring a Bible to you. If that's your first Bible, uh, please keep it, uh, because it's our gift to you. We want you to have the Scripture in your hand, and when you come back, notice the shameless plug there for our church, when you come back, uh, you'll have a Bible, and you'll be able to follow along with us. We're big on the Bible here. And we open up the scriptures every week, and we think this is, this is relevant uh, to us. And we just have to uh, ask and find the ways that it is relevant to us. So we're in a series on Nehemiah called Magnificitus, which is really uh, a Latin, uh, kind of a crazy Latin phrase for great city. And that's because the theme of the book of Nehemiah is the rebuilding of a city. It starts with the rebuilding of the wall. The temple in Jerusalem, the key city for all of Israel, has been rebuilt. And, and in this book, we see the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. In those days, the wall meant everything to a city. Like if you had a wall, you had a city. That's because in those days, you could simply not defend your city without a wall. So you had, no, you had nothing to defend until you had a wall. It doesn't matter how many people you had in it. Uh, and, and so the city was the safe place to live for people. That's totally opposite of our culture now, isn't it? Generally, people think, like, if you live in the city, it's the unsafe neighborhood of the city. But it was completely opposite in these days because of the way the city was built. But uh, this book is about rebuilding that city and rebuilding that wall. But it really isn't just that, is it? It's more about rebuilding the people of God to worship God and rebuilding their hearts. And so there's, there's, the city has lied in ruins for about 141 years, and Nehemiah comes back into the city. He's called out of Persia back into uh, Judah, where he's going to help rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But when he comes back, um, he faces a lot of opposition. He rebuilds the wall. But what really, this isn't just about the rebuilding of the wall either. This is about the rebuilding of their desolate spiritual lives. And so just like the city walls had lied in ruins for that long, so did people's lives were lying in ruins for years and years and years. And so Nehemiah, with a special call on his heart from God, I believe it's the heart of Jesus given to Nehemiah before he understands that heart of Jesus, he comes to rebuild this great project. And so we're working our way sequentially through Nehemiah. Sorry about the keys there. 
Um, which is a good thing because I, for one, would probably have skipped some of the chapters. Would you not have if, you're, if you've been with us at all? There's some pretty dry parts. Uh, there's you know, a couple pages out of the phone book this morning. There's a couple pages out of the church bylaws uh, here this morning. And so they're not exactly the most riveting of texts um, until you begin to understand what's behind the text. And in this particular passage, I'm going to, I'll tell you what I'm going to say, and then I'll say it, and then I'll tell you what I've said. That's what preachers are supposed to do, by the way. Um, even though that sounds like a lot of repetition, uh, it, it's going to be helpful for you. What happens is the people, um, they, they let, let me just start into the message. Let, let's be honest. Um, but I've, I've got to read to you the text first. And so we're in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse... You can tell how scattered I am this morning. Some of you are like, start praying now, please. Because um, it's only going to get worse. Um, chapter 9, verse 1. Let me read this out for you. I'm going to read the whole chapter here for you, right till chapter 37. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Not totally sure exactly what's going on there, but they're sad. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Hold it right there for one second. So you guys think this is a long service, okay, at Urban Grace? They, were, they started their service with the reading that was six hours long. Then they, they stood up that whole time. And then after that six hours, they had confessional, public confessional for another six hours. Okay? So for those of you who think this is really, really long what we do, read the text and be very grateful that it's not that day. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunny, Sorry about your name, Bunny. Sherebiah, Bani, and Chaniah, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, Pethathiah, I think, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven and heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You have found his heart faithful before you and made him the covenant. To, that's a key word. To give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against your fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And so you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as stone into the mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven 
and gave them the right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes in the law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the, out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go into, the, into possess the land you had sworn to give them. That's the good stuff. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. And so they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand and their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. And therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they, re they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, right, word, right usage of the word awesome here, not just cool, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all of your people until the time of the kings 
of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your, your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. It's God's word. I'm going to read the rest later. There's a lot of scripture there, isn't there? A lot of, a lot of story, a lot of things that keep repeating over and over again. But I think primarily the first thing that we see is that, um, uh, that God initially had made a, a covenant with his people. Um, but before we get into that, what a covenant is, uh, we're just going to talk a little bit uh, about this particular passage. Last week's passage was all about kind of the, the feasting part of God's command. So God had commanded to his people in Exodus that they should uh, feast seven times a year and they should fast once a year. So it tells you a little bit of the emphasis of what God wants his people to do, doesn't it? That God wanted his people to primarily like once basically every couple months. He wanted them to celebrate and feast and, and, and get excited about his goodness for them and his provision for them. There was a lot of neat things in that. But he said, once a year, I want you to consider the ways in which you have broken the covenant. Because this is really what you're celebrating when you celebrate. You're celebrating God's covenant with you. You're celebrating God's faithfulness to you. You're celebrating God's goodness to you. You're celebrating God's mercy towards you. You're, selling, you're celebrating God's graciousness in all that he does. And once a year, he said, think carefully about the way you have broken your commandment. Again, doesn't this even show you the graciousness of God, even in the rhythm in what he wanted his people to do? So he commanded them. Some of us look at this Old Testament. We're like, what's all these rules about? It's amazing. He commanded them to celebrate his goodness seven times as much as he commanded them to think about their sinfulness. Now, that's a gracious God, my friends. That's God's grace just in the rhythm of that. And this is one of those fasts. And that's why there's a lot of, God, you're awesome and we messed up. Have you noticed that as you read through that? God, you are gracious and merciful, but we had stiff necks. That idea of stiff necks is kind of, we don't use that now. We say we're stubborn. But stiff neck is like when someone's talking to you and you don't turn, right? Like when you're a little kid and you're pouting and someone says, you know, look at me and you're like this. And you don't move your head. Maybe look out of the corner of your eye. It's kind of this act of stubbornness, isn't it? <laughs> Some of you are like, I still do that, right? <laughs> right? No, we, we're not God. Look up and talk to me, Trev. No, I, I want to. No, no way. That's the idea that's going on here with these people. And that's what they were. They were stiff-necked people. They kept doing this. And not because they didn't know better. Not because they hadn't had second chances. 
It was a repeated, uh, a repeated theme throughout Old Testament scriptures. The people would, would, they would, would, they would hear from God. And he would bring them grace, and he would tell them what they would do. And you know, he, he provided for them in the desert, in 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 Egypt, and he took them out into slavery. And it literally, in a couple of days, they're like, "Well, where's our leader? Well, we need a new God." So let's, uh, you know, I love Aaron's. This is Aaron's recreation of what happened. Uh, they made a golden calf. Aaron says it like this. He goes, well, all these people gave me their gold coins, and I threw them in the fire, and out jumped this calf. I, I don't know what happened. I'm, I'm innocent. I'm a victim here. And Moses was so mad, he broke the law of God and went back up and says, you already broke it. I might as well just break these, these rocks, these stone tablets, and try this again. And it's just like, it's crazy to imagine that what, you know, if we were there, like picture being in, in Egypt for a while and you're in slavery and all of a sudden, you know, the firstborn of Egypt dies completely. God miraculously saves you. You go through the, the, the Red Sea. It parts on either way. Like, have you, have you guys ever experienced this? Where you go to the lake and the lake just... And you walk along the bottom of the lake. Like, I've never experienced that. So I'm pretty sure that would stick in my memory. These people walk through it, they get through it, and the moment that they sense that Pharaoh is behind them, they're like, thanks a lot, Moses, for miraculously bringing us through the Red Sea. Now we're going to die out here. Moses is like, this was like 30 seconds ago God saved you. But actually, friends, we are just like Israel, aren't we? The Bible actually says we are just like them. In fact, the Bible would go so far as to say, we're basically them. We are them. And we, God has covenanted with us. He said, he said right back to our great, 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 times a, a, a grillion there, go all the way back to the garden. And what you will find is our first parents had a clean slate. And they said, eh, we got this, God. I got this one. And they sinned. And it's been a perpetual problem ever since. And this is the problem. God, in His graciousness, offers us companionship and says, all you have to do is obey me. But we, with our sinful hearts, say, we got this, God. We're good. It's the, I'm not just talking about those who have committed their lives to Jesus and those who haven't. I'm saying those who have committed their lives for Jesus now know better and have even less of a reason than those who have never heard about Jesus and what he has done. And so let me explain this. This is what the gospel is all about. The gospel is God in his, in his kindness created us and we disobeyed what God wanted us to do. And God in his kindness sent his son, Jesus Christ. He came, God came to us and said, I will, I will make... The, the relationship right again. And, and I will literally pay the price for the sin of disobedience. I will put my son in his place for your sins. And, and what will happen is he will exchange his great righteousness of his perfect lived life for you if you will simply turn your life over to Jesus Christ and say, you are the Savior, you are God, I am sinful. And if we do that, we all know for those of us who have, that that's not a one-time thing, is it? That's not a decision we make just once. That's a decision we make daily. 
The problem is daily, we do just what Israel did. We break this covenant with God. I will follow you. God, I will turn my life completely over to you. And then something better seems to come along. We turn to that for a while. That's what sin is called. That's what sin is. It's turning away from God to ourselves. Repentance is actually a direction word. So repent means to turn 180 degrees. So when God says he wants his people to repent of their sin, he says, I want you to turn away from your sin. I want you to turn from me. But, but when, what we might call even backsliding or turning, what happens is we turn back to our sin often. And this is kind of a repeated theme. One of the biggest issues with Christians is many Christians don't think they do this very much. But the Bible's pretty explicitly clear of what sin is. Sin is anything that replaces God. Sin is a, even a temporary belief in not believing in God's full holiness and authority in your life. Some of you say, well, I, I can't obey God every second. Yeah, aren't you glad that He provided a Savior to take care of that? That's why the gospel is good news. Because can you imagine if it was up to you that every time you broke the covenant, you, you were now out? And God put it, kind of a big line. And he says, okay, all those who want to try and, and, and earn their favor toward me, go. Good luck with that. And then bit by bit by bit, those covenant breakers, they just, they just fall away. What's the covenant? Well, the covenant really, the covenant law is found in Exodus. It's the Ten Commandments. You ever broken a Ten Commandment? Some of you are breaking one right now. <laughs> and yet, this is God's great mercy. It, 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 this is God's great story is that nevertheless, they were disobedient and you were faithful. He is merciful. He is faithful. We are disobedient. We are unfaithful. And so these people are just recounting this covenant that has been broken. And a covenant is simply this. A covenant is just really a formalized commitment. So uh, some, there's, a, there's kind of this idea out there that, um, you know, making covenants isn't really that important anymore. And, and kind of what we say with our mouth is, is good enough. Um, but we all know that. If we've ever worked in business, anyone like an employer, if you notice that your employee's word isn't as good as its word... <laughs> You ever notice how, like, like, the primary thing is when you make an agreement with someone, you get it in writing? Like, if you've ever bought anything off of Kijiji or eBay, you want it kind of in writing. You want some sort of a record. You want something formal, not like, yeah, sure, I'll buy that. Can you imagine on eBay? Well, it's just like, it's up to whatever. That would never work. And so... Uh, just like today it matters, in those days it especially mattered that these people were interested in kind of recovering the, the covenant. And they had broken this formalized commitment that they had made previously. And often there, when, when they signed covenants, uh, they would do these strange things that would kind of like be a sign act. Today, uh, we would sign a covenant like many of you would have signed a covenant. Okay. Uh, your, your covenant keeper is Visa or MasterCard. You signed a covenant that says, I will, when I borrow this kind of money, I will pay it back at this kind of interest, and if I don't pay it back, you can have my whole life. Right? That's kind of what you sign. 
I think there's a little razor blade that comes with that application that you cut and you put it in blood. That was kind of a joke. Sorry, that's a little graphic for some of you. But it, who, who's bought a house? You've signed a covenant to pay for that house. You've put your name on the line. You've put your life on the line that, that literally banks can come after salaries sometimes. You, you've signed this away. Many of you have formalized all kinds of covenants. That's exactly the kind of covenant that's what's happening. It's that this covenant matters. Those covenants, when you die, will all go away and someone else has to deal with your covenant. This covenant is a lifelong, eternal covenant that, that the people are making. And they would do these strange things, like sometimes they would cut birds in half, and then they would walk through them, like as a, as a sign. I guess they didn't have big pens in those days, so that's what they had to do. It's kind of a weird way. Um, some covenants or some oaths were, and I actually get this one, there's one in the Old Testament where uh, you'd put your hand on the person's thigh and swear. It's like... There's nothing that would make a dude more uncomfortable than another guy going, I swear that I will keep this covenant. He's like, don't move. Okay? So there's some weird things in the Bible about covenants, but you can tell they're serious. It's like, dude, you know a guy's serious when he's ready to put his hand on another person's thigh and, and go, I'm going to fulfill this covenant. These people put their hearts out there. They said, God, you're free to punish us again. If we don't fulfill our covenant, we're ready to write it down. Again, to remind you that in spite of the fact that you may have never written your name down, like I have given my life over to Jesus, I guarantee you in your heart you have or you haven't. And I guarantee you if you have, you've broken that covenant to follow Jesus. And yet, we see clearly in the text that although it's a problem, it's not a problem. Although it's an issue, it's not something that God hasn't thought out and provided for. And it's not really fair from God's perspective. He keeps making covenants. He keeps being faithful to His people. They keep being unfaithful to Him and messing everything up. And He keeps coming back to them and saying, I forgive you. Start again. This is the rhythm of the Christian life, by the way. This is why Martin Luther would describe the Christian life as all of, all of it. All of life is repentance. That although there are victories, that honestly, at the end of the day, aren't you glad that it does not depend on your work, but it depends instead on Jesus' work that is perfect, that never fails? I am very glad for that. That's why we celebrate the Lord's table every week. No matter how badly you've messed up, no matter how much you've taken God for granted, no matter how stiff-necked you've been, no matter how presumptuous you have been, you can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. I mean, it's a, it really is a scandal. That's why the gospel is often called a scandal. But secondly, in the text, we see that the people don't just say they're sorry for the covenant that they broke, they begin to make a new one. And so I want to read the text again here. Chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. 
on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Often, these sealed covenants would go inside like the Ark of the Covenant or inside the temple where no one could, could, could uh, touch them. You know, modern-day Swiss bank account kind of place. Uh, and then 10.1, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Halkaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malkajai, Hattush, Shabaniah, Maluk, Harim, Meramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, <laughs> Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Mijamin. <laughs> Apparently there's a Rastafarian amongst the Nehemiahs. Messiah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Binuai of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelida, Paliah, Hanan, Mekah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodai, Bani, Ben-Enu, the chiefs of the people, Parosh, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zetu, Bani, Again, poor guy, Bunny, uh, Asgad, Bibai, Ad, Adonijai, Bigvi, Aden, Ader, Hezekiah, Azer, Hodiah, Hashim, Bazai, Harif, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Zur, Meshezabol, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hanani, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Reham, Hashabna, Masiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Bana. <laughs> There's going to be someone who listens to this on the internet and skips to this part and goes, What kind of service is that? What is he speaking? Um, again, we, we, you know, it's, it's fun to kind of read some of these names. Well, maybe it's not fun, but it's good to read some of these names because those names, again, meant that actual people signed this thing. Like in, in, in heaven, perhaps, we're going to bump into these people as like, oh, you're bunny. Man, you're not the bunny I thought. When, when, <laughs> like this is a big burly guy with tattoos, right? What's your name? Bunny. These are real people. Real people signed this document. Like you could go back in history, find actual people who said, I will write my name to say I'm not going to be a covenant breaker anymore. They formalized it. They didn't have to. There's nothing actually that I found in Scripture that required these people to, to formalize it. Maybe it was a good idea. Maybe he said make it clear somehow. But it, they formalized it. They said, no, no, we're, co- we're committed to this thing. We're committed to, diso- to, to future disobedience, almost. I mean, I can't imagine, like, reading that first half or confessing that half, half and, and kind of go, oh, but we're going to be so different than them. You know, there's that, one, that the, there's that one guy. Usually he goes to seminary, but there's that one guy going, yeah, you guys are going to break this so fast. It's not even funny. I'm not even going to sign it. So I'm going to break it right away. 
And yet there's people that put their their reputation on the line. They don't just make a verbal commitment to God. They formalize it. I think formalizing it does a couple things. It helps us to realize what we're doing seriously. Again, this is why Visa will say, you can't just verbally agree to this. Have you ever tried to do a government document and just say, like, um, like for instance, often when we're dealing with the government, uh, sometimes Leslie does it and sometimes I do it. And if it's Leslie's deal, Leslie's my wife, by the way, if you didn't know that. Um, this would be weird if you didn't know that. Um, so, so Leslie will be on the phone and she'll say, well, well you should talk to my husband because he, he knows a little bit more of that. And they're like, well, we need your permission first, right? It's always those things. Well, you need to fax in your permission. And it's like, seriously, like he's right here. Everyone wants to kind of formalize it. When it's really, 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 really important, have you noticed that there are formal agreements? There are formal commitments? For the things that are unimportant, often there's not that agreement. But for the things that really matter in your life, think carefully through all of the important commitments that you have ever made. The majority of them involve some sort of formal commitment. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, but we're going to talk about membership in this church this morning. Because I think that's a direct application of our text. And I, I, I've tried to think actually through some of the pushback. I don't know where you guys are on membership. I only talked to one person or two people really about membership. So I don't have a, a great sense of how people feel about membership. But some of you, as soon as I say that word, formalizing your commitment to a place like Urban Grace sounds crazy. And if you're a visitor, you're like, okay, when is he going to dismiss us so he can talk to the family here? But I want, to, I want to try to persuade you of a few things, even if you've never thought about this before, and why this could be not just important, but actually helpful for you. Uh, one of the bigger questions that people have is, well, membership isn't very biblical. Well, I'm finding that actually there are, that word membership isn't in the Bible. You got me there. But you know what else isn't in the Bible? Power. So some people use that argument of like, well, it isn't in the Bible. That word isn't in the Bible. Well, Plaza Theater isn't in the Bible either, but that's where we meet. Church buildings aren't even in the Bible. Singing with instruments isn't in the Scriptures. But we do that. Did you know that the word Trinity, which is actually the core of the Christian belief, that word is not in the Scriptures. Trinity is not. Now I would say the concept certainly is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, that concept is absolutely biblical, but you won't find the word Trinity if you look for it. You can do word search all you want. You'll never find it. Not in new translations, not in old translations. And so I, I think that's a poor argument just in and of itself. Well, membership isn't biblical. Well, I would say that word maybe isn't there, friends, but you know what is there? Formalized commitments. Did you know in the New Testament, actually, uh, when they begin to uh, preach and, and, and people, uh, as the churches started, uh, they begin to pass and hand off the leadership to some other people, and they have a list of widows. They made lists. And if you were a legitimate widow, like if you were a widow that legitimately needed help, you made the list. First Timothy talks about this. 
Make sure First and Second Timothy. You you take care of those widows who are on that list. And you know what? If they do this and this and this, they shouldn't be on that list. And so they made formalized lists, friends. They did. Another pushback is um, membership isn't very freeing. <laughs> Doesn't create the same kind of freedom. Well, I don't want to be a member because it's like like what if? You know, I don't totally. You know, I, I want some wiggle room. I, do you know where I think this this comes from? This question comes from the fact that we have places like Superstore, where we go in and it's just option, 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 option. I mean, it even happens in Facebook. Facebook has ruined us forever because if on Facebook it's like, are you going to this event? They put maybe. Do you know why they put maybe? Because people hate commitment, don't they? What does that maybe mean? They should just put, if I can't find something better to do, I'll come. Am I right? What does that mean? means to put it in a dating relationship, I will date you as long as someone else better doesn't come along. We laugh about this, but this happens all the time in churches. Some of you are here because you've had multiple church girlfriends. And you've dated them. But when a prettier church comes along, you dump that girl and go to this and date this church. And then when that church tells you to repent of your sin, you don't really like it. You're like, I don't like that girlfriend. I'm going to this girlfriend. Well, they don't tell me what to do. And then that girlfriend, well, her music, her music's terrible. So I'm going to this girlfriend. We call it church hopping. We call it church surfing. Uh, church um, Searching, some of us call it, I'm really seeking the Holy Spirit on this. Truthfully, you're just looking for a better girlfriend. Now, what happens in dating relationships when you're looking for a better girlfriend or a better boyfriend and that, that, that happens, right? You're kind of like this. The boyfriend, it's, it's rarely the boyfriend, it's usually the girlfriend that goes, what is this? What is this that we got? What are we doing here? Oh, well, uh, can you imagine if you as a guy go, oh, I just, uh, you know, you're, you're cool, but uh, honestly, peace out if someone else comes along. She's like, well, actually, now would be a good time to act on that. See you later. That's usually how it works in the world, and yet sometimes we don't think carefully about commitment to a church. And yet here's the strange thing. We want full commitment from the leadership of a church. We're stunned... If, if a church doesn't show commitment toward us. It's like, what? I came to this church and I sat here and consumed and consumed and consumed and I, I have to do something? Now, thank, thank Jesus, this isn't what I see in our church. So this is all hypothetical. But honestly, in our hearts, I think some of us are here. And I think, honestly, some of us need to think about getting engaged to a church and marrying that church. Say, I'm in. I'm in for the lifelong commitment. You say, whoa, well, what if something happens? Well, if you tell your bride that, or your groom that, and we found a way around, it's called a prenuptial agreement. These people formalize their commitment, even though 
You and I both know what this could possibly mean if they broke it. They'd have to do it again. They'd have to renew their commitment. And so, is membership not very freeing? Well, I would say this. Being a Christian isn't designed to give you freedom in the sense of just freedom. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. In fact, becoming a Christian says, I am no longer a slave to my mission. I'm a slave to Jesus' mission. But that doesn't mean you just get to act how you want. If you don't believe me, read your New Testament. Letters are written to churches. In fact, the only reason it seems letters are written to churches is because they think they can do whatever they want after they become a Christian. And Paul and Peter and James and all these kind of New Testament writers will repeatedly say to them, just because there is freedom in Christ doesn't mean it's freedom the way you think it is. And so is membership not freeing? I would say, I I think it's very freeing. Believe me, I feel great freedom in my marriage. I've got a lifelong commitment to my wife. I feel great about it. This does not restrict me in any way. And some would say that, right? People would come unto me, wow, man, how can you only like show commitment to one person? I'm like, this is one of the most freeing things in the world to not have to worry about whether or not I'm going to be committed to this woman. I am. End of story. And I think our challenge is to hear this and, and just think about our own commitments. Uh, thirdly, I'm already doing it. Why do I need to formalize it? Well, <laughs> again, to use some of these dating relationships, uh, why won't you formalize it? I think it's because you're, you, you're the maybe clicker on Facebook. That's why. You know, when, when uh, your girlfriend comes up to you and says, we should get married, and you say, why should we have to formalize this? We're, we're, we're kind of already married in my mind. The reason generally why you would do this is why. So you can run away at the drop of a hat. doesn't mean that much. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, not that big of a deal. Have you watched TLC lately? This is a big deal. This matters to people. And I think in, in many ways, why should we formalize it? Well, you'd be surprised what formalizing can do to help you stay committed. You know, last year, we're, we're kind of wrestling through how do we deal with our finances? How do we know? And you know what we decided to do? We decided to, to send out kind of a, a little sheet that said, uh, between you and Jesus, what do you think you can give in the next year to Urban Grace? Now, why do you think we did that? So we could find out what people were giving? Well, partially, but not in the way that you think. We wanted to get a picture for kind of the budget. You know what that did? That helped our givers think, okay, care, okay. if I'm going to formalize this, I'm going to write this down. I better not just like write down like, oh, I can probably give so-and-so. I mean, go to any financial counselor and say, you know, what are you going to do to save your money? Well, I'll just try. They'll be like, let's get something down on paper. Right? Oh, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of committed to this job. No, get it down on paper. Oh, no, we're, we're, you know, I'll take, I'll take care of my illegitimate children. No, get it down on paper. Right? Am I not right? Get it down on paper. What does that do? That helps you stay committed. 
so that when you are derelict in this, someone can act. It's a built. It's rigged so that someone can come in and say, you signed something here. What's going on? Fourth pushback, membership will scare people away. Are you guys scared yet? (laughs) Thank you. One person. Jesus, you've been good. Uh, I read a book a couple years ago by Milford Minatria, who actually talked about practices of a missional church. So this is like cutting edge. This is like, you know, the, the, you know, all of these churches that are totally on mission, they're hardcore to serve their city and, and love their city with Jesus. Do you know what he said was the number one practice of the missional church, of a true missional church? Number one. Like, I wouldn't even put it one. He said a high threshold for membership. He said, churches that are on mission make it crystal clear what the expectation is of the person who walks in. They formalize this. They, they make sure who they know is with them and who is not with them. Now, does this mean you as a visitor or you as kind of like someone who's just kind of coming in on us, you can't learn from that or you, you can't take some time? Yes, you have time. We're not rolling this out today. We're going to roll this out in the next couple of months. Because we want to give you time to think through this, to understand your commitment. Believe me, I understand just as much as any of you what a lifelong commitment means to things. And again, we're not holding people to even lifelong commitments. We're saying, you know, until you decide not to commit to this, this is what you're committing to. And we're not trying to rein you in and, and take away your freedom. And actually, the missional churches that are, that are on mission and are growing are the ones that have very clear pictures of what? is expected of them. Very formalized agreements. And so the people have signed this covenant. Lastly, what happens? We have the obligations of that covenant. And so here in verse 26, thankfully we're through all the names, through the contact list on Nehemiah's iPhone. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves uh, from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of of the Lord our God and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take daughters for their sons. This was about intermarriage. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And we will forgo the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. That's the year of Jubilee. That's in God's law. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. That's kind of like the salary for the pastors. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, the appointed feasts, the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. That's their church. They were giving to their church. 
We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to the Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. So these are the extra ways of worshiping. There are people with extra resources. So this is kind of the extra ministries that go on top in the way of, of, of worshiping. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. So in those days it was like you, the, the priests actually got the best. It's kind of, kind of cool. One, one of my favorite verses. And to bring the first of our dough. Uh, that's not like dough. <laughs> And our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes of the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and sons of Levi Levi, shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers, the bands. We will not neglect the house of our God. Again, we read two full chapters here this morning. Hopefully you gleaned a lot just from reading of the scripture. But here we see their covenant obligations. We will do this. This is what we will do. We will write it down. We're going to give to our church. We're going to keep the Sabbath. We're going to make sure that our life is ordered around what God wants us to be ordered around. We're going to listen to the Word of God. Here's, here's their obligations. We will obey the Word. We will walk in obedience to do what the Word says. And if we don't do this, we're signing right here, God. You have permission to discipline us. Wow. Not sure I'd make that promise on the heels of what I think is about a 70-year spanking coming out of Babylon. If we do this again, you can send us into another 70-year spanking. Not sure I'd sign up for that. But the people do. We will not allow people in our city to marry people who don't worship the true God. This is not like a racist thing and, you know, you can't, you can't be... Uh, kind toward other races. This is, we're not just going to let anyone into Israel and bring their gods with them. That's what it meant. When you married, intermarried, the reason why God said this was a problem is because every time in Old Testament, when you married someone, you married their God. That's how it worked. So if they worshiped another God and you married them, you were saying, your God is as good as my God. You know, that was before the my dad is better than your dad argument. My God is better than your God, but they're both pretty decent. Do you know what that is called? Pantheism. Lots of gods. I think it's called pantheism. Sorry. Is that? It is. Yeah. Whatever. This is how it's translated for us today. Well, whatever works for you. They said we commit to not saying that. No, no, no. It's not whatever works for you. It's whatever He asks us to do. That's what it is. We're committing to this. 
We will be marked by following the Sabbath. Every seven days you are going to see that there are people in this world that love God, the God of the Bible. Every seven days. It's marked by a whole day of not working. And if people come in and try and sell us their stuff, we're like, sorry, no chamois for us today. We're God's people. Can't sell us anything. Any of you know what a chamois is? Fourthly, we will give appropriate resources to the community of God commanded by the Word. Plus, we will give, give above and beyond that if it help, is helpful. Plus, we, will, we just want to worship you, God. So we commit to like worshiping you in abundance and being generous. And this idea of first fruits is, it's not like, oh, you know, I guess you can have some of my money. No, no, no. I get my paycheck. You know what? You're the first person. Before I pay myself, I pay God. Now, that's not trying to pay God, earn God bad. That's, that's simply saying, what's the first priority when you get your paycheck? For many of us, it is not God. Many of us. How many of us tithe if we feel we have money left over? That kid right there. Fifthly, we will promote the mission of God to spread the presence of God. See, this wasn't just about kind of giving money and the priests getting wealthy. This was about making a place for the presence of God. And so these people formalized this commitment. And that's essentially what we want to ask you to do. We want to ask you to formalize your agreement with us. Now, here's what's cool. We're going to call it a covenant. It's right there. You can see it. Urban Grace Membership Covenant. The reason why it's a covenant is because... We as Urban Grace Leadership also want to covenant some things with you. We want you to covenant with us that you will do these things. But we want to covenant with you. Here are the things that I think uh, you need to covenant with us. First of all, you need to covenant that this is your family. This is your family. Now, I'm, we use the family stuff a lot around here. But, I, I, you know, I like this idea of like the family meal, okay? So what we do here is we have a family meal. Now, is it okay to eat with other families? Please, somebody, awake. Yes? Okay. Now, my girls like to eat at other people's places. And I actually like it when they eat at other people's places. And it's just me and my wife. However, if my kids said to me, Well, you know what, Dad? Um, We like your meals. But when there's... You know what? When my neighbor has a better meal on, uh, how about I just go there? Um, what, 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 what should me as a good dad and my wife as a good mom, what should we do? Uh-uh. You can go there as a guest. That's fine. We have no problem with that. But if you just start eating where you want to eat on the basis of what you like, that's not what a family does. That's not how a family eats. Family eats at the table. You say, oh, that's tough. What if you're a terrible preacher? Well, that's my problem, Okay. Let me and Jesus and leadership deal with that. Yeah, please, continually pray for me. But this is, this is your family. That's what you're committing to. You're saying, this is my family. This is my first family. I'm not going to date other families. When other families have great stuff, I'm going to support them and say, yeah, and, and sometimes, yeah, the way they do it is better. It's because they have more money. 
or that they have better buildings or they have better music. Yeah, of course people are going to have better buildings, better music, better preaching. It's always going to be the case, by the way. Some of you are like, oh, I really like it here. You know what? Eventually someone else will come along, then there'll be a better preacher, and there'll be a better setup, and the band will be better, and it'll be shorter, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you're going to want to go, okay, well, how about I do two families? And we're saying commit to doing one. Commit to doing one family. What does that commitment mean? It means you support your family, right? It means you're part of that family. You contribute to that family. You promote that family. What do I not appreciate if my daughters do? They walk away and they're like, hey, Dad, you're awesome. And then to all their friends, they're like, my dad's terrible. Oh, Dad, great, 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 great. Don't, you know, don't, don't show up publicly, Dad. That's not us not supporting. I don't have a daughter like that. I have a daughter that I think is proud of her dad, and I'm like, okay. You like celebrate this, Trev, for the next however long it lasts. Some of you aren't really proud of your families. You don't talk about your families. Some of you do, and I love that. I love hearing Urban Grace. I love the unsolicited. I love my family. I'm happy to be part of my family. Thirdly, You are not always a consumer in your family. At some point, you need to turn from being a consumer to a provider. This is just what we would call Christian maturity, Christian discipleship. That's what this would be called. Okay? So again, to use the family reference, my daughter Eve is four years old. She is not a provider. She is a consumer. She's a hardcore consumer. Like, I mean, she's committed to consuming. When you're like zero, between zero and one, that's all you do. There isn't, you don't even have a life other than consuming. Right? But when you're 28, I sure hope she's not a hardcore consumer in our family. In fact, she won't be because she won't be in our family if she's going to be a hardcore consumer at the age of 28. It's not appropriate, is it? It's not appropriate. Are there times you need to come in and and you consume some things like you consume the Word of God? Yes. But that's not the only thing you do. You're committing to being a provider. You're committing to maturing and say, as I have been given the Word of God, now I go out. And so that's why we call it about big and small, gathered, scattered. We don't want this to be simply a family where you come in, you sit there with your arms crossed while everyone else makes food. Have you ever gone to a house where that happens? You know, where someone goes in and, the, and, and some person just sits there and while everyone else does the work. And then when the meal is done, they get up and go and take a nap. I find that really disrespectful to not even offer sometimes, unless it's a prearranged thing. I've done that, and I hear about it later. Because I'm not a consumer in my house. I'm a provider in my house. And when I act like a consumer, when I should be a provider, I get rebuked quite quickly and rightly so. But it's amazing that we have built churches that are just filled, packed, full of consumers that think it is their right to complain constantly about what they're consuming and not lift a finger. The most vocal people in any church I've ever been a part of, I find out sometimes they don't give a penny or serve in any way. And those kind of people I have very little time for. 
Not because I don't have time for people, but because I say, you're a consumer. I've told you not to be a consumer. You're consuming, and that you're complaining about consuming. The people that most get my attention are the people that come in and they say, what can I give? This is, this is the famous presidential push, right? To ask not what you can get from your country, but what you can do for your country. That's the question here. We're saying, sign it. Say, I promise to become a provider. What do you get out of it? <laughs> Jesus, first of all. I don't know what you get out of it. Sometimes. There's a common phrase, you get out what you put in. Yeah, it's, it's, part of, that's a, it's a cliche because it's very true. Fourthly, you need your family more than you think you do, and your family needs you. Sometimes it's like, oh, we need you to be members. No, 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 you need to be members in our family. Why? Because some of you are quite lazy. Some of you are dating. Some of you struggle with commitment. Some of you need refocusing on a regular basis. And when you sign, you start thinking, am I really cut out for this? They're going to they're gonna talk to me if, if things aren't all right. You, you need your family. You need a healthy family. That's what the Bible says. You can't be a Christian without a family. I think it was a famous famous uh, a guy in the early century said, you cannot have God as your father if you do not have the church as your mother. You need the church to grow in your understanding of the gospel. You need people that are committed to you. You need spiritual parents to take care of you and protect you. You need that more than you think you do. And one of the ways that you can help this is simply by formalizing and saying, yep, I'm into the family. Now, those are all the things for you. Here's what we covenant to do for you. I will go through these as fast as I possibly can. Number one, we are covenanting. It's, in, it's going to be in the covenant. We're covenanting in this covenant to shepherd you as the best as we possibly can. To pastor you the best we possibly know how. To say, if people are falling through the cracks. Now, we've done this without you formalizing it, and you've committed without formalizing it. I know. I get that. But as we grow, this will really help our process better and better. We're covenanting to take care of you the best we know how. And when we're not taking care of you, and you formalized it, we formalized it, now you have kind of a reason. You kind of have a written document. Hey, you said you'd take care of me. I need some help. Please help me. Please pastor me. I need it. And we can say, well, yeah, yeah, you have formalized it, and so did we. You're right. We do need to take care of you. How can we help you? Secondly, we're, com- we're covenanting to hold to the biblical qualifications of leadership as laid out, I think, in first places like 1 Timothy 3.15, 1-15, and, and Titus. That you have our word. We're covenanting that we will not put people in leadership here who do not fit the biblical qualifications of leadership. We won't do it. And if we do, we now have some fodder by which to remove or deal with the process. Again, this is where kind of the formalization of this really helps this out. Thirdly, we're covenanting to give you the whole counsel of Scripture, not just the things we really like to talk about. We're covenanting to open up the Scriptures over and over again and to show you. We're we're not making this stuff up. 
We have a higher authority than ourselves. We're covenanting. We're going to open this book up again and again and again, and we're going to show you this is what we think God says. Now, in this covenant, there are like primary issues like Jesus is God and non-primary issues don't exist on here. We're not going to debate about some of the smaller issues. We're not, but we are going to say, yeah, we'll hold to this word of God, this whole council of scripture that says this book is actually about Jesus. Do you have our word on that? We're covenanting with you that we will bring you Jesus week after week. We're covenanting with you to protect you from wolves. Here's where membership gets really helpful for you and very unfun for us. But that's our covenant to you as leadership. Now, this is a weird metaphor. Like, I'm not literally talking about wolves, okay? Or coyotes. I'm not talking about that. Although there actually probably are coyotes around, but we're not talking about those kind of coyotes. Here's what we're talking about. The Bible says, describes the church like a flock. It describes pastors like shepherds. And describes those who try to destroy flocks like wolves. That means doctrinally. Sometimes that's why I continue to take the pulpit like I do. Because I can't find anyone that I know for sure is not a wolf. That's why I do that. I do that for you. Not for me, for you. I'm kind of stubborn that way. I don't know if you've noticed. I'm really stubborn. I'm really protective. Now, as a dad of daughters, this this starts to make your blood boil. But believe me, you are my family. You have my word. I will get in the face of of any wolf that comes in here. And I will say, you don't belong. In fact, I will say, if you're a sheep that's ready to just bite other sheep, I'm coming after you. You're going to get quarantined for a while. Why am I doing that? Because that's my covenant to you. This is what Jesus did for me. He shepherded me. He gave me grace. He protects me. He says, give your life to me and I will protect you from everything that comes. And he says, now I want you to do that for churches. And you have my word that we as a church leadership are very serious about this. And if you're a wolf here, don't come back. If you're here to like doctrinally maneuver your way into the top so you can teach what you want to teach, meet me in my office later. Because it will be the last conversation we have. I'm serious about this. And you have my word. We're covenanting with you to do this. And it will help us greatly if you just form us. How do we know who the sheep really are? How do we know how to protect them when they don't really want to be sheep in some ways? It's fine. You know, there's lots of other good shepherds in this city. I could point you to a number of them. We're covenanting to seek Jesus and His Holy Spirit for the direction of the church. You have my word on this. We will beg Jesus and His Spirit to help us on mission. We need your trust to do that. We even need your input on that. It's not like a one-man show just so that you know. 
There's a plurality of leadership that's going on here that we're going to seek the Lord Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit for how we need to maneuver. And by, by the way, this is kind of what I love church finance rig so that you have to or you die. And we sought the Lord a lot and we've been like, Jesus, I think we made a bunch of mistakes. Can you help us rectify this? I think we misunderstood you. We've got to go a different direction. But we're committing to that. And lastly, we're committing to being examples of how the gospel is both important in someone's life and the example of how it is applied to someone's life. So if someone who you want to invite to church or you say, I don't understand what this whole gospel means, I don't understand how to apply it to my life, that you can look at your church leadership and go, that is how it's done. You don't know how to act in response to the gospel? Can you take a look at our leadership? Can you look at their lives? Can you look at their families? Can you look at their marriages and go, Oh, that's how it's done. Okay, that helps. We are covenanting with you to be that kind of example to you. Again, I, this is a shameless plug. I am trying to persuade you of this importance and how helpful this can be for you. And hopefully you've heard my heart on that. There's other details. We'll roll them out but hopefully it won't be a surprise to you and hopefully you won't feel like, oh, we're just cramming this down so we can get our numbers up. That's not what this is about. This is about your love for your family and our love in leading the family. That's what this is about. And now as we close, I want you to think about this. If you partake in communion this morning, what you are actually saying is, I have formalized my commitment with Jesus Christ. Maybe you haven't signed it anyways, but you have formalized it because you're ready to publicly state that I believe that Jesus Christ is God. I believe that He is my Savior. I believe that He's the only Savior. And this is why the Bible actually says, think about when you eat the Lord's table. Don't just take it. Don't bring judgment on yourself and think like, oh, it's this, this magical thing that everyone does in Urban Grace and we all go up and we love to stand there and it's good bread and there's some wine and, you know, all this stuff. No, no, no. This is your statement of your formalized commitment with Jesus. So if you haven't made that commitment with Jesus, what would I say to you? I would say don't take it. It won't formalize the commitment. That's something that can only happen in your heart. But I would say, make that decision there in your heart, then come up and partake. But enjoy it again. Enjoy the goodness of the forgiveness of sins. Enjoy the goodness of the grace and merciful God. Come up knowing full well that if you break all kinds of commandments this week, you're still welcome back next week to repent. And Jesus is still gracious enough to forgive you. Your friends might not, but Jesus is. And so some of you can sing and take with a smile on your face, and I invite you to do that as you examine yourself.